Hello, I'm Michael Woods, Chief Scientist at the Asian Turfgrass Center. This is the ATC Double Cut, where I take a look at some of the content on the ATC website and talk about some turfgrass issues that I've written about and explain on this show why I think it is interesting uh, to read about it, why I thought it was worth writing about, and give the double cut treatment by talking about it again. Today I have a special guest. Andrew Thompson is joining me from Japan. Welcome, Andrew. Good morning, Marco. Glad to now, be here. It is a pleasure to have you on the show. Andrew and I took a trip to some amazing golf courses in southwestern Japan, the Goto the, the courses in the Goto Islands, which I'd uh, seen, you'd taken a trip there. Once I, like instantly after I'd seen those photos um, of the courses, which I'll show some of those, um, I realized, wow, that is something special. And uh, fortunately, later that year, I think it was in uh, 2018 when we, when I went there with you, and you, I think you'd been there in early 2018, and that was... Um, that was some trip. Yeah, well, um, <clears throat> nothing has changed since. <laughs> I can tell you that Japan, like a lot of the world, has basically been frozen for two years, more than two years now. Uh, so I was unable to visit the islands during the pandemic uh, because the islanders don't have a hospital, uh, or at least on one of the islands. Uh, <clears throat> they have a very small clinic. A man by a nurse, uh, and they were terrified of being infected. So uh, for two years, um, they were really isolated, but they were still playing golf. Well, that yeah, that those those courses are really cool. But uh, you know, before we talk about that, I had been watching the Open Championship, and I uh, af Im immediately after Cam Smith one and it was clear that he was the champion i checked my twitter feed and i saw a tweet from you that was just spectacular and uh let me let me read it it said at 6 45 a.m this morning i scattered my father's ashes on the 18th green of the old course 12 hours later an australian wins the open cam smith champion golfer of the year champagne golf and I thought, before we talk about the golf in uh, the Goto Islands and the types of playing conditions out there, um, could you tell me a little bit about that? Because uh, that was a heck of a story. Yeah, well, um, I didn't really intend to make it public. Uh, but um, my father won five Open Championships for... Uh, in the 1950s and one in the 1960s. And uh, the second of them, 1955, uh, was on the old course, uh, St Andrews. So he passed away in 2018 and about six months or so before he died, my mother told him that uh, she would have a small portion of his ashes scattered on the old course. And uh, he didn't object, he said, well, this not much I can do about that, but don't make a big fuss about it. So as time passed uh, with the pandemic, we were unable to travel to Britain. And my mother lives in Melbourne, Australia. I live in Japan. So finally, uh, sort of late last year, early this year, it became clear that we were 
going to be able to visit the Open Championship in St Andrews. So, oh, okay, we can do what we uh, promised. Uh, and then before the trip sort of took place, one of my close friends, uh, Tony Rule, who's captain of Royal Melbourne Golf Club, he arranged to visit uh, Royal Liverpool Golf Club, that's Hoylake, Royal Birkdale and Royal Lytham. And those were the three courses um, apart from St Andrews, where my father won his championship. So it seemed sort of logical in a way that uh, we scatter, I scatter a small portion of the ashes at each of the clubs, each of the courses where he won. So I did that in the week before the Open in Cheshire and Lancashire and uh, just very quietly played with the local uh, captains and so forth of each club and after the game, just quietly on the 18th hole with nobody looking, I scattered some ash. And at St Andrews, it was difficult because, of course, the course is closed to all but the competitors and caddies and officials. And I couldn't just walk on. So I thought, well, um, I can't do this surreptitiously after the open. It sort of seemed silly. So I quietly asked for permission. And I was pleased that uh, the Links Trust uh, which owns and controls the courses, including during the Open, uh, said, well, yes, certainly, um, very important. Uh, so the director of courses, Sandy Reid, very kindly escorted me to the 18th green there at about uh, quarter to seven on uh, the Sunday morning. And Cam Smith was forced to back and uh, McElroy was looking in really very fine form. So I did what I did and sat back to watch uh, the last day of the championship, and as the hours passed, and then Smith suddenly caught fire and uh, caught up and passed McElroy, and Cameron Young gave him a good run for his money, but Smith managed to buy a shot. Uh, and I was sort of sitting there thinking, gosh, you know, um, what's happened? This is like an act of magic. So the um, what I'd done with Dad's ashes had got out. I mean. John Hopkins, the former Times correspondent, uh, knew about it, and he was to write a, a piece um, the Global Golf Post. So I thought, well, the golf world perhaps deserves to hear this astonishing coincidence. So I sent out the tweet, the tweet and um, uh, a lot of people now know about it. So that, that's what happened. In 1955, he won in July at my father won in July, and later that year in October, he won again on the old course in the British match play. So he had a sort of special record there. And uh, my name, uh, Andrew uh, Thompson, uh, that's no coincidence either. Uh, I was named after sort of the town. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I I did not know that. That That is, that is some story. What a trip to the UK to visit those open championship venues where your father had won. Had you been to those courses before on the West Coast? No, the strange thing was that I had not. I'd always asked my father to take me back there, but he declined. He didn't want to cause a fuss, and you know, he, he'd done what was necessary there as a young man, and he went back for anniversaries, 50th anniversaries of the championships he'd won and you know, he, he, he likes the clubs um, but he just wouldn't go and I, I never kind of got around to it but the other thing I should add is that uh, recently we discovered a set of 
Dunlop Maxfly irons and woods in his garage. And it looks pretty certain that they were the set that he used in 1958 to win at Lytham for the fourth time. So I took a half set of those clubs back, a two wood and a two, four, six, eight iron pitching wedge, sand wedge and an old hickory putter. And I played each course uh, with those clubs uh, with a modern ball, uh, not a old 1.62 inch ball. But uh, so it was a little extra. Um, you know, the ashes were one thing, but to play those courses with 1950s golf clubs, uh, that was very special too. What is it? What is it like swinging those clubs and uh, making contact with the ball? Good question. It's the two wood off the tee. It was kind of scary. Uh, the shaft's still very good, and the original uh, wound leather grips. It's fine. I managed to hit most of the fairways. Uh, the irons are, are sort of how do you say they're sort of crude. They don't quite have the feel of a, a modern, you know, 2020 manufactured iron. Uh, and a six iron from the 50s goes only as far as an eight iron now. You, oh. you just can't get the distance. Uh, it's I don't know, the shaft, the, the, the quality of the metal in the head, something. Um, yeah, and yeah. the lofts would be different too. The I think well, the lofts yeah. have gotten stronger over the years. Yeah, maybe. So that was interesting. I mean, I, I did play with these clubs uh, twice in Melbourne earlier this year on Royal Melbourne Golf Club. Uh, West Coast, so I sort of had a feel for the distance, but there was something sort of special about having a you know, set of just eight clubs and a little pencil bag carrying it around on my shoulder. Uh, and of course, the sound of a persimmon wood when you hit a drive or fairway shot with it is quite different, quite different. Uh, so it that's, was a tri trip back in time, <clears throat> really was. Well, that's and speaking of a trip back in time, did you say hickory putter? Yeah, yeah, no. he used, yeah he he used a hickory putter to win two opens. Uh, you can see it from the photographs on the, the final green. And we never knew which of the hickory putters he had at home was that one. So I took along a hickory putter that he used for twenty years, the last two decades of his life, and I didn't know if it was the one. But at Royal Lytham in the display case on the first floor of the clubhouse, there's various clubs that Open Champions used. And when I walked into the clubhouse the night I got there, there was the hickory putter. So he donated oh. it to the club. It's there on display. And the oh, next wow. day when we played, um, we had lunch after the club secretary and some others, and they very kindly took it out of the display cabinet, and we went down to the 18th green and had a putt with it on the green. We didn't oh publish it, but uh, it was it had a real really nice feel to it, so I, I can understand why Dad liked it. Yeah, I, yeah, I hadn't really thought of that before, but hickory putters must have an incredible feel uh, compared to a steel shafted putter. It, well, it, de it depends a bit on on the head, the, the shape of the head. If you've got a, a, a gooseneck. Um, slightly offset hickory putter um yeah they they i think you feel it more in the in your fingers and the palms of your hand when you strike the ball but you've got to remember this is nine to the mid 50s uh, even the late 50s and you know, this is 20 years after hickory putters were went out I and mean, steel steel putters i guess came in and 
about 1930, 31, 32. Um, why was a professional player still using a hickory putter 20 years later? Well, the answer is because he thought he could hold more putts with it, and he did. Yeah, I I did not know that. I I kind of, well, I, I had thought that when uh, the, when steel shafts came into golf, I thought that went into irons and woods and putters and everybody transitioned their whole, their entire set. So that's, that's cool. He won two open championships with the hickory putter, that, or yeah. hickory shafted putter. Yeah, yeah. And uh, <clears throat> he told me, you know, he often said in the, that in those days that the battle to win a championship was as much how you got hold of good clubs, not, not sort of how you hit them. You know, clubs varied uh, in their quality, you know, even coming out of the same factory. So a lot of players then would experiment with different drivers uh, and, of course, putters. Uh, and there was much less uh, difference in the technique. I mean, the claw grip and the, the, the angle, you know, the, the various putting styles uh, that players today seem to use. There was a lot less of it then, I think. Sam Snead was an exception. Uh, he, he varied his stance radically to try and uh, adjust for the yips, uh, but uh, most of them had a fairly orthodox grip, and they just tried various putters. And Dad would sort of give away a putter after about a year's play. It just stopped working. So, uh, <laughs> But if you want to see the one that he used, it's there in the display case at Lytham. Wow. that That is... That is something. Now, you use the phrase champagne golf, and um, I don't know that I've heard that before, and and I feel like maybe I should know what it means. But when when I think of it, what it means, it's like oh, okay, it's it's championship golf. You have champagne afterwards. It's also it's played so well that one thinks of champagne as a fine drink. Um, does that is that the proper understanding of it, or can you tell me what, well, it, what that it, phrase it, means? It means golf that's uh, worth celebrating in some style. Um, I mean, you wouldn't open a bottle of champagne if you came second or third in an open championship, but you would if you won. So okay, <laughs> it just came, came to mind like that. Yeah, that's a nice phrase. Yeah, that golf that's worth celebrating. Well, that was something I. I've had the pleasure of meeting you in Japan a few times, and um, we've played golf together, we've socialized. Uh, you're in a beautiful part of Japan, uh, Itoshima, which is on the island of Kyushu uh, near Fukuoka. It's in Fukuoka Prefecture. And for me to see that tweet from you, I just I was so glad to know that you'd had a chance to to do that so thank you for sharing that story with me mm -hmm. now um I, I will well let's see there's an i was going to mention <laughs> there's there's this also the bridge to the gods while we're talking about fukuoka let me mention your book and then we'll talk about the courses in the goto islands you mm -hmm. are the author of bridge to the gods tales from kyushu memoirs of life in far south japan i read this book soon after it was published and i really enjoyed it it 
to me, it tells a story about life in Japan, um, which is just an amazing country. It tells a story that the average resident of Japan, the average foreign resident of Japan, won't get to see. The average tourist won't get to see or be aware of. And I would say even the average Japanese citizen, the average Japanese city dweller in in the large cities of Nagoya and Tokyo, the Tokyo metro, metropolitan area, uh, Osaka, they won't get to see much of this countryside either. But you went around Kyushu, the southern island. Um, first of all, you're living on a little peninsula near the ocean um, in an old home um, that you've restored. But you you took a motorcycle around, you you drove around uh in a in a car or a motorcycle, visiting islands, um, chasing wild boars, inoshishi, um, eating food, and then you wrote about it in a very interesting way. And and uh, adding anecdotes, I I just thought it was interesting. There's one chapter where you start off talking about uh, the President's Cup in Korea, the international golf champion of. Uh, competition between the uh, rest of the world team, Australia, uh, Asia. I think no Europeans on the President's Cup team. And then then you talk about Shinto shrines and the the crop, you know, crop and wild boars and just... It's amazing. (laughs) And I found it quite enjoyable. So you can get that book if you want to read more about andrew's very interesting life and the interesting uh the interesting region of kyushu Hmm. well thank you yeah you can buy it on amazon the publisher will send it to you uh but you know this part of japan uh is the historical entry to the country for all foreign things it's just opposite korea and uh, the Chinese mainland is closer to my house than Tokyo is. So it's not far away. Uh, so everything from Chinese characters and, and, and culture and, and tea, and then eventually European culture it came into Japan through Kyushu, the city of Nagasaki or other parts of the coast here. So it has a particularly, I think, a, a noteworthy historical place in Japan's history. So. I just went out and tried to find uh, things there on the ground. I went to a battlefield that's the equivalent of Gettysburg here, where there was a big civil war after Japan decided to modernize, and the old samurai who resisted the modernization took on uh, the government forces, uh, the Union Army, if you like, uh, with swords. Uh, And yet the Union Army, well, the Japanese government army, was armed with... uh, rifles that had been used in the U.S. Civil War. After that finished, uh, there was a surplus of weapons and somebody figured out to sell them to the new Japanese government. Uh, so I went to that to battlefield, things like that. Um, I met some former Yakuza uh, organized crime guys and who'd since gone straight after you know, leaving prison and heard about their lives and all sorts of things like that. So. Um, those places that I visited and wrote about, and most of the people, they're still there. Um, so if, 
anyone would be kind enough to buy and read the book, you can come to Japan when we open up finally and uh, you know, we'll go around to all those places, uh, eat the same noodles that I did. But uh, anyway, it's just something I put my heart into over a couple of years and was published in 2018. So it's yes. still quite fresh. It is but, still. Uh, there, there probably wasn't enough golf in it. No, there, there is. I mean, you mentioned Kea Golf Club dropping by to see uh, our friend from Alabama, Andrew McDaniel, um, yeah. who is uh, the golf course superintendent there, and and uh, you mentioned James Bond, and I don't. You must have uh, mentioned uh, just one more historical note: the uh, Kamikaze, uh, yeah. the famed. Uh, defeating of the mongolian invade was it mongolian invaders yeah, and that was, happened at hakata didn't it well that's where the battles happened when the mongol empire forces tried to invade japan um at 800 years ago uh yeah it was the foreshore of uh, fukuoka city in the bay where the uh, big ships landed and the samurai took them on and managed to keep them away for a couple of days so the Mongols retreated uh, about 50 miles away to another bay uh, to sort of regroup and have another go. And they anchored their ships around some small, rather rocky islands uh, in this bay. And uh, in came a typhoon uh, and smashed the ships to pieces. Uh, and that was the end of the invasion. So uh, the, the myth was that the typhoon had been sent by the gods uh, to destroy the invader. Um, so it worked that time, but it didn't work uh, in 1945. Uh, <clears throat> but there are a couple of museums uh, in Kyushu to the what's called the Tokotai or the Kamikaze pilots. Um, they're very moving places to visit. Uh, very, uh, I don't know. Um, <clears throat> there's two of them: one near Fukuoka and one down near Kagoshima. So they, you can go visit them. You, know, you don't have to be embarrassed as a foreigner um you know the people that run the museums are quite happy to show you all the exhibits and so you learn about how you know the japanese military deteriorated to the point where they had to sacrifice sort of 19 18 19 year old boys uh, to try and stop the allied forces around okinawa it didn't work no no that uh that was a very sad time and a, a terrible time and um yeah, the the war uh, had the war continued, uh, the Americans or the Allies would have made landings um, around Miyazaki, I believe, which is on the south uh, eastern part of Kyushu yeah. Island. So, there's there's you know going back eight hundred years, uh, mm. there's that kamikaze. Kami means uh, God, and kaze means wind in Japanese. So it's uh, translated usually as divine wind. So that's the original meaning of kamikaze was from 800 years ago when the divine wind saved mm. the country from invasion. And the mm. idea was that there was going to be this, uh, I, I don't know, the kamikaze the second time is more a Western uh, yeah. usage. It's not the word that Japanese used to describe no, no, what happened with those young pilots. Yeah, they call it Special Attack Squadron Tokotai. Um, but, you know, when you go down to Andrew McDaniel's uh, maintenance facility at Care Golf Club, and there's all these young guys there working, 
on the crew, you know, keeping the turf in good shape. You know, some of them are 18, 19 year old. They're essentially the same you know, young men that were uh, forced into it largely in 1945. So, and a lot of the fishermen you know, around the little harbour where I live, um, you know, just sort of young Japanese guys, and they were the same as you know two generations ago uh, uh, enlisted and fought, and then you know go back 800 years, there would have been samurai like that too. Mm-hmm. So those echoes of history are still here, and uh, it's interesting. You know, last week in St Andrews, if you want to stand somewhere and, and, and feel the echoes of history, listen to them and, and absorb them about golf, well, St Andrews is the best place to do that. Uh, some of the other golf clubs in Scotland and England have you know, a very rich history and it's sort of palpable, but nowhere more than the old grey tomb, that's for sure. That's right. It's, uh, it's often called the home of golf, and uh, when you're there, you certainly feel that. Hmm. Yeah. Now, yeah. So, so, yeah. So Japan uh, golf is very popular in Japan. There are a lot of golf courses around the country, and there are some golf courses that are basically not even on maps. Uh, there's a few, and Japanese people don't even know that they exist. Somehow, you discovered, or or not. Hmm. There's very few people that know about these courses. Somehow you discovered them. I'm going to bring up on my screen. Um, I'll, I'll share my screen and show a blog post that I did about this, um, which I'll put a direct link to uh, in the description of this video um, or in the um, in the notes to the podcast version if you're listening to this. These are the courses in the Goto Islands. And how did you... How did you come to discover that they're that they exist? Well, uh, <clears throat> in Japan, the biggest selling golf magazine is called Golf Digest, Golf Digest Japan, and the deputy editor or former editor, now sort of consultant editor, uh, Furukawa-san, he was born uh, in that area on the mainland in the city of Sasebo, which uh, is home to the American uh, part of the American naval fleet here, and uh, so he knew about these courses on. Two islands. If you look on Google Map and you look for the Goto Islands, G-O-T-O, you see a chain of islands offshore from Nagasaki and you go up to the top and the top two islands uh, are the ones where these homemade golf courses exist on the edge of the cliffs. Uh, On one of them, uh, Ukushima, the northernmost island, there's still about a half a dozen Wagyu cattle kind of grazing between the fairways. So the local people uh, on one island, I think it was Okushima first, uh, they built their own course about 30 years ago um, and they just literally mowed fairways and kind of cut very crude greens uh, on this grassland that exists along the top of the cliffs um, and right on the edge of the, uh, the East China Sea there, you can see the, the ocean from most of the holes and they started playing. And they don't have a clubhouse, uh, but over the years, the population of the islands about 2,000 people, that's all. There was always about 20 or 25 men and some women who wanted to play golf. So they organized a, an informal golf club, and they have competitions every month. And if you win a competition, you know, you might get a, a bottle of dishwashing liquid or some toilet paper. <laughs> like, 
this is really good. Uh, <laughs> I won dishwashing liquid at once. So Furukawa, the uh, editor, he sent me out there 2015 or 16 to do a story with a cameraman. And I went out with hickory clubs and I found these gems. I should add there's on the neighbouring island, the residents there built a five-hole course as opposed to Ukushima's nine-hole course. And uh, so the two islands have these you know, crude courses uh, and they're perfectly playable. Uh, in fact, the turf on them, I, I, I think, is essentially the same as turf was 100, 120 years ago in Scotland and maybe I, in, in the US. You, you tell me, Michael, you have an well, idea of I, I, I thought it was very interesting because when I'm playing golf, I'm often looking down. Um, although on these golf courses uh, at Ukushima and Ojika, uh, the the views are so spectacular that uh, I was distracted from the grass <laughs> and I looked out and enjoyed the landscape a bit. But yes, I'm I'm looking down at the grass, looking at the playing conditions, and I recall you noted you. I think you mentioned that you thought that these conditions would have been um, similar to what all the golf courses in the world would have been uh, pre-World War One, um, which would be, which yeah. certainly seems about right. Um, I thought that was a very good insight. Um, and it's, it's interesting. Those courses are, of course they're maintained, but they're not maintained by turf grass professionals. They're maintained by volunteers, by the, members and they they're not maintained daily they're maintained in advance of a of a club event yeah. aren't they yeah yeah they uh during the warmer months of course you know the grass is going to grow uh, a lot quicker so they have to cut more often um and they do it on a roster you know who's got time off they're they're fishermen and farmers and a local electricians and whatever so they rotate the uh, roster and they just Go and cut it. And what you should add uh, is that this grass is wild. It's it's natural, what we call noshiba. Um, you know, the, the fairways and the greens is the same grass. Um, I bought the both clubs a roller, uh, the, you know, plastic thing you fill up with water to roll their greens. And that, that brought about some improvement because before that, the greens were very bumpy. Um, there's a couple of bunkers on one course, um, but they don't cut the rough. They haven't got time. So the rough has never been cut. So your ball leaves the fairway. In most cases, it's gone. So I, that produces a special kind of golfer. Yeah, it's uh, it's spectacular. And you have to hit across the ocean and over cliffs. And then you also have to avoid the, the rough. And it is quite reminiscent of, uh, well, it's not reminiscent of, of something that I have not experienced, but it reminds me or makes me, brings to mind um, that this must have been what golf was like 100, uh, 120 years ago or, or something like that. Because, yeah, the, the maintenance level is um, such that it creates a course that's very playable. Um, it hmm. still seems fair. Um, I played with hickory clubs that you shared with me for those rounds that we played there yeah. um and even playing with hickory clubs playing on uh, rough terrain rough turf it still seemed fair and if one hit a good shot it was still rewarded um 
Yeah, and I it's, mean, it's very much, it's golf. It's the same game. Yeah, it's the essence of the game. Um, you know, you go back to uh, the late Victorian era in Britain, and yeah, people were playing like that uh, at the same time in the U.S. where the early courses were built. And they, they didn't, uh, I'm sure, they, they didn't sort of stand there and say, gee, you know, this fairway is really poor. Maybe in extreme cases, you know, if the ball was sitting up on the wild grass on the fairway, you know, you, you had to worry about what club. You're going to hit a clique or a mashie. Um, and once on the greens, you have to ram the ball a bit harder across uh, turf that's not cut fine uh, for a green like now. But you were still playing against your opponents and you still had to win. So everybody was on the same level playing field, is the, the point of phrase. Uh, so uh, when I play there, uh, when I get out there in the competitions and that, you know, I'm out there to beat the fisherman Watanabe or the electrician or whoever else. You know, we're trying to win. Um, and, you know, maybe a week after playing there, I might go to a Kea Golf Club or, of course, Tokyo or Hirono Golf Club and play there. And, you know, I sort of miss uh, the, the crudeness, the crudity of the turf in the Goto Islands. So uh, if there are among your uh, viewers um, <clears throat> and your, your admirers, Micah, uh, people who, you know, they're just tired of life, but they, they're desperate for another golf experience that they'll never get elsewhere, well, you'd better come to Kyushu, to Sasebo, and get the ferry uh, because uh, the courses are still there and the cattle are still there on Okushima. The uh, nothing else. There are some other courses around the islands of Japan that are not perhaps quite as, as simple um, but are not what you'd call a well-maintained you know, modern golf course. And they're on... Some interesting islands uh, so you could probably find uh, at least six or maybe eight of them around the place if you had the time to visit uh, I, I I'm going to try and do that uh, before I'm, I'm called uh, <laughs> uh, to another place uh, and in fact we made our first television program uh, about these golf courses in March this year broadcast in early June uh, myself and a Lady, uh, retired lady golf professional, uh, Moromizato Shinobu and I. So we're going to try and make a few more such programs. That uh, that is good advice, uh, and that is exciting to know that you have that television program in the works, um, which hopefully will get produced, and you can shoot those episodes and go explore some of those other locations. Mm. And I would certainly. Uh, when I can travel to Japan again, I would like to go visit some of those places with you. I've, I've traveled over more, uh, more of Japan than most people because in my work, many of the golf courses that I've gone to visit, um, because of land availability, the golf, many of the golf courses that were built after the 1960s were built in rural areas. So I've been to Shimane Prefecture and um, just uh, out in the mountains of Tochigi or in Fukushima or uh, various, uh, you know, places far from Sapporo <laughs> um, in the northern part of Japan. Um, and in so doing, I've been to the southernmost course in Japan, which is uh, in um the it's it's not on ishigaki island it's on uh 
Oh, I, I disremember yeah. the name right now, but it's on an island in between Ishigaki and uh, Iriomote Island. So you can uh, go there. You're on the southernmost uh, golf course in yes. Japan. I've been <clears throat> on the easternmost golf course in Japan, which is uh, in Hokkaido. And speaking of islands <clears throat> and, and another <clears throat> one, um, this is a course that a lot of people will be familiar with, Kawana. You've been to uh, <clears throat> the, the world-famous Fuji course at Kawana. <clears throat> Yeah. Um, which is in Shizuoka Prefecture on the Izu Peninsula. And if you look out from the golf course, you'll see islands out there in the Pacific Ocean. And in fact, yeah, and yes, and the the other at, at Kawana, there's 36 holes. The the world famous course that C.H. Allison designed is the Fuji course and the original course there, there's an older course there that is spectacular in its own right. And that is called the Oshima course, which is named after, I, I presume that Island that's out there. Yeah, well, if you go, if you also get on a ferry and you mm -hmm. shoot out to, uh, Izu Oshima Island, you will find a golf course on spectacular land that is, um, not played very often. Oh, I visited there uh, some years ago, and I didn't play the course because I I often visit golf courses and look at the turf and take some pictures and study what's growing and what the problems are and what the solutions might be, um, and and don't play. <laughs> but uh, that that's the type of course that I would like to play. It was a nine hole course, and I recall they had very few rounds. And some of these courses that are on these uh, low population islands or the, the southernmost course in Japan or uh, the easternmost course in Japan that reach the extreme boundaries of the country and away from the big population centers, they have 4,000 rounds a year, 6,000 rounds a year, 12,000 rounds a year. What, what I would consider relatively low rounds because the typical golf course in Japan will do 35, 45, 55,000 rounds Per year they tend to be pretty busy if they're near a big population center hmm. well it's <clears throat> interesting you mentioned that uh, golf course at uh, nemuro on hokkaido um it's easternmost point for the golf uh, course in japan i played that uh, course in the same week 2016 i think as i played the northernmost uh, course at wakanai and the turf in the Siberia, in siberia the turf in hokkaido uh, is very interesting because it's a Siberian type climate, I guess you'd say, and uh, you know the, the feel on the fairways when you walk and when you hit a ball is quite different from a lot of the courses on Honshu. Or um, well, the further up Honshu uh, Island, the main island of Japan, the further up you go from Tokyo, again, you know, I, I found the climate and the turf around Morioka, for example, was, was, was distinctly different. Um, yeah, that's. You know, That's right. Well, you mentioned Morioka, and um, I've been to a course there, Nambu Fuji, which was designed by your father or yes. your father's firm, um, yeah. and that—that's uh, kind of the—that's the southernmost part of the region of Japan at which you have to use cool season grass for the most part. So, uh, yeah. Sendai is kind of the cutoff for me as far uh -huh. as how far north you can go with yeah. the warm season grasses, the types of grass that crunch underfoot, that have that mm -hmm. stiff feel 
and mm -hmm. that's the Noshiba Zoysia yeah. japonica or Cori Zoysia matrella that are the turfs that you'll find on 90% of the courses mm -hmm. in Japan. But you get mm -hmm. up to Sendai and up above that, which Morioka is, I think, mm -hmm. a, a couple hundred kilometers north of that line. Yeah. And then you get cool season tees, cool season fairways, mm -hmm. cool season rough, and just some excellent uh, bent grass greens generally. Yeah, well, it's interesting, two weeks ago in Cheshire uh, at Hoylake, Birkdale, and Lytham, I mean, those courses are about 40 minutes, 30, 40 minutes drive from each other. And I, know, I, I was interested to find how they differed. Um, I mean, they're Lynx courses. They're all right, pretty much right next to the, the coast, the Irish Sea coast. Uh, but you know, the topography of each of them differed. And uh, likewise, I thought the fairway quality, well, quality, the feel of the fairways was a little different on each one. Uh, certainly the scale of the dunes, uh, Hoylake's very flat, except for the holes along, uh, right along the coast. Um, whereas Birkdale is a huge, the scale of the uh, dunes within the course there is huge. You, if you have a look at Jordan Spieth's uh, big slice on the 13th, was it, in the Open Championship there not so long ago, where he took a, a drop uh, and managed to... Uh, I think bogey the hole and then he overtook Matt Kuchar. You can see the scale of the, the dunes there. Um, and finally then you go another 40 minutes or so north to Lancashire where you find Royal Lytham. And you know, it's something in between the two. Uh, and then I think again you, you know, head north to the old course. And uh, again, the landscape is flat, uh, flattish. But within each uh, hole there can be apart from the 1st and the 18th, I guess, there were all sorts of uh, you know, movement in, in, the, in the soil. So that was quite an interesting experience for me because watching uh, you know, the YouTube videos produced by the RNA and so forth of previous Open Championships, you don't quite get a feel for what the turf's like uh, on those open road courses, sort of how it's sort of different. And so that was my experience. So when you're playing it, you might make a different move at the ball or or clip the ball a little bit differently if you're going to hit the proper shot or the shot that's called for at the time based on the turf conditions uh, that differ yeah. from course to course? I, 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 I'm not that good that I, I can adjust my... Uh, my sort of strike of the ball so precisely, it was more, you know, I'll hit the same shot pretty much on different fairways, different courses. But, you know, the feel of it, the, the, the turf's thinner uh, on most of the holes, uh, I think, at Hoylake and Lytham than it was uh, at Birkdale. And it, it's somehow maybe more like the old course turf, uh, except the 18th and the 1st, which are sort of greener. Um, but it's summer in, in Britain, so things are going to be different in, in winter, certainly different seasons. But, you know, um, if one thing about Japan and its golf is I think it's a little too uniform. You know? I mean, the course care is generally pretty good, but there's, a, I think, a disappointing sense of uniformity about how green surrounds, you know, should be prepared. When I've uh, talked to golf course uh, managers and so forth and explained about trying to provide uh, areas around the green where the ball will roll, where you can putt from, say, you know, 20 metres out from the green. 
they look at me as if, you know, this is sort of lunacy. Why would we putt from 20 meters away from the green? Well, because you cut the turf uh, so fine that you can putt. And no, we, we want to have our turf that has to be long around green so one can chip. Well, yeah, why? It's, um, the, anyway. the, there's a unique look to um, some courses in Japan that you might recognize uh, that's very target golf oriented, not because of bunkers or lakes or other things. It, there are it's golf courses on big expanses of grass, but it's made to be target golf by the tall rough. And mm. and have you ever seen those courses that will have the tee and then the fairway? But then the interesting thing for me is that little narrow strip of approach that's uh, cut low I'm, between fairway. It's almost yeah. like a walking path that goes from yeah. fairway up to the green. Yeah. And and it's a little strip of fairway mown with a triplex with yeah. a three reel mower and it and it you you can't hit a ball through that. It's just simply a walking path that goes from the fairway up to the green through the rough. That's a very unique phenomenon to Japan and you won't see now not every Japanese course has that, but some do. And I'm sure that they weren't originally like that because there wasn't that equipment to cut it that way. So somewhere in the 1970s or the 1980s, it was determined in Japan by someone, probably at a famous tournament, that that was a nice look and a nice target golf and it would reward good shots or something. And a lot of courses copied that to where now you'll still see that occasionally on televised tournaments. And certainly you'll see that if you go visit some courses. And it's just like, oh, that's not quite the way that the maintenance would be ideal. Certainly for someone like you who who plays at courses such as Royal Melbourne uh, on, you know, when you're in Australia, I, I believe that you play there occasionally. And, and that's not the type of playing surface that would be considered ideal. <laughs> no, no, no. It, it's uh, but look, <clears throat> Japan is a prisoner of its own orthodoxies. I mean, the, the Japanese uh, saying the nail that sticks out will always be hammered in. So you know, as a course superintendent or uh, committee uh, chairman or something at a club, if you said no, no, let let's mow the surrounds and get some sort of Scottish style golf going here, uh, you'd be the subject of, of ferocious criticism. And there's not many Japanese who are brave enough uh, to endure that. So the orthodoxy becomes uh, sort of set in stone. It's very hard uh, to you know, dislodge that from people's minds. Um, even in courses that are literally owned by one man um, or one woman, um, oh no, we have to listen to the members if there's no hanamichi, no as you say, a little pathway up through rough to a green. You know, people complain, where's the Hanamichi? Well, sorry, we, we're going to play it like it is in Scotland or um, maybe Shinnecock Hills, other places like that, uh, Royal Melbourne. Um, no, this this would be, uh, the you know, the emperor would be upset. <laughs> we can't do this. So it's going to be a battle. Uh, but if that's the way they want it, well, in a sense, they have, I think, uh, less variety in the, in the risks uh, of golf here, and therefore, uh, I think less pleasure. But they don't know it. So, no. Uh, but you're the. Are you still the chairman or the president of the Japan Hickory Golf Society? 
Yeah, we have our annual general meeting tomorrow. Um, I'm trying to step down, but they won't let me. So <laughs> I think I'll be elected chairman again tomorrow. Yeah. Is is that uh, is that growing in membership? Are are there more and more people interested in that? Or yeah, we yeah, you know we we add t- about ten percent a year to our sort of membership. That's not a lot of people, but you know we another twenty twenty five people a year. Um, oh, it's great. It's very strong in Nagoya for some reason. In Nagoya, wow, yeah, Japan. Japan has a big golf industry, so we we're talking about some of the courses that people won't typically see. If you're a foreigner that coming to Japan to play the famous, highly ranked courses like Kasumi Gaseki, Tokyo Golf Club, Hirono, Naruo, uh, Kawana, those types of courses, they generally will have a, a a pretty traditional maintenance in a more they're they're japanese but they will have wider areas uh, mm. and and moan a little bit uh more thoughtfully around the greens and so on tokyo <laughs> golf club of course is famous for having two greens but mm. their two green system at tokyo golf club is a bit different than the two green system that you'd see on the typical japanese golf course but um the a typical Japanese golf course would be something like Ube 72, which mm-hmm. is uh, just across the bridge or through the tunnel yeah. and over in Yamaguchi Prefecture from where you are. Yeah. It was interesting. I, I was looking at uh, the tournaments that Peter Thompson had won in Japan, and apparently he played a 13 or 14-hole playoff, yeah. which is the yeah. longest playoff ever in pro- well, the longest sudden death playoff in professional golf or something like that. And I looked yeah. at it, and that was at Ube 72. Yeah, it was. Yeah, there were the, the other two players who were his good friends. They were both Australian, too. There were three Australians in a playoff in a tournament that was, I think, the Pepsi Ube uh, Championship. Uh, Graham Marsh, Brian Jones, and the father. And they just couldn't edge each other for 14 holes. <laughs> anyway, finally, Dad managed to birdie a hole or something prevailed yeah it's not that far from here and that's a course um that i've been to that you won't see a lot of foreigners at and Mm -hmm. it's a it's a 72 hole complex um Mm -hmm. with uh i think they have four clubhouses it's it's that's a very industrial region of japan a lot of um steel uh Mm -hmm. perhaps some chemicals but i think uh um, a lot of steel works it's a very industrial area. Mm. Uh, it seems like working class now, but mm-hmm. there's enough executives and uh, mm. um, managerial level people that would go play golf that they could develop this rather large golf operation, the Ube 72 Club. Mm. And that course would have the traditional type of maintenance. They have 72 holes, four courses, one of the courses has a single green and uh, three of the courses have the two green system and at those courses when they have the two green system they tend to be two rather small greens that just kind of sit side by side which is different than what you'd see at tokyo golf club where the holes almost the greens could be 50 60 70 80 yards apart at tokyo golf club and those greens would be um similar in in Mm. size in that either one either one of the holes that you would be playing on the particular day would be a legitimate uh Mm. green a a course that you're hitting to 
Yeah, they're different. I mean, it makes the whole quite different in most cases. The you know the angle in uh, from the approach shot or the tee shot and par three. Um, so yeah, the, the, you've got one club there with a, a one course with two greens. So there's quite dis there's quite distinct variety in what they enjoy there at Tokyo Golf Club. But as you say, other two green systems, you know, one winter, one summer green, whatever, they're right next to each other. So it doesn't make much difference. Um, anyway, that's one of the unique things about Japan and its golf. Um, and you and I have gone further by trying to find uh, golf courses in, in remote locations to make you know, the golf more interesting, perhaps. And my message to your viewers would be, you know, you can do that as a foreigner here. You can travel. Um, you always find someone who will help or there's enough English around. You get in a higher car, uh, drive on the same side of the road as Britain or Australia. Um, but you can get around um, and play. Uh, and you'll find uh, little local hotels or inns to stay in and love really good food uh, in these remote places. Uh, and people are not suspicious. They're, they're a little shy of, of foreign visitors, but there's always someone around who speak a bit of English or explain things. So that's the joy of what do we call it? Remote golf in Japan. Yeah, it's and some of these courses are just it's spectacular scenery and you just feel it's it's really a special and enjoyable kind of golf so i'm i'm looking forward to playing uh a round or two again with you sometime uh i'll bring my hickory clubs and we'll go play some of those classic courses around kita kyushu yeah yeah um yeah around kita kyushu there's three that uh, we owe ourselves uh, <laughs> the occasion to play there most certainly uh, and Unzen, uh, you went up to Unzen to look at the grass, didn't you? Yeah, I, that now that's a that golf course is on the side of a volcano, mm -hmm. at a famous, uh, very famous hot spring resort that was really famous before World War II, and uh, mm -hmm. people used to. It was a stop on the boat trip between Kobe and uh, Shanghai. And people would stop there and, and then go up to the high elevation on the side of the volcano and play golf. Um, mm. And during the war, they used some of the fairways, some of the, a couple of the flatter fairways they used as runways for um, uh, training for, for pilots and grew some potatoes on the fairways and stuff. But it's, it's back to being a golf course now, and it's very cool, very cool. And that's, that's another course that um, not a lot of people get a chance to visit yeah it's it's about an hour's drive from the city of nagasaki <clears throat> and uh lovely hot springs uh, sort of village there with plenty of accommodation um yeah it's an elevated course uh, built in about 1904 i think um by a group of uh, japanese and foreign mostly british merchants who were there in nagasaki and uh, it's a public course you can play it today there's a problem on a couple of holes of some crows that come and steal your ball so they give you a cap gun kind of a, a pistol to take um, so you walk down the fairway uh, with this cap gun and fire a few shots to scare the crows away and then you drive and rush down to the fairway before the crows can come <laughs> back and take your ball it's a problem yeah but they, they, they won't they won't give you a 12 gauge you know to really destroy these crows <laughs> 
Yeah, that's probably probably a good idea. Well, Andrew, thank you so much. It is really enjoyable to talk with you about the types of turf and uh, golf courses and stories of what you've seen around the world and what you continue to see around the world. I am looking forward to seeing you in person again and playing golf and maybe have you back on the show sometime if you're willing to talk about some of these interesting things. Yeah, I'm more than happy to appear again. Perhaps not too soon, but there's some uh, there's some well-informed uh, people in Melbourne you might talk to sometime about uh, how you know they fared hosting the President's Cup in recent years and some of the other things about golf in Australia. So um, there, <clears throat> among the Australian sort of uh, golf enthusiasts, uh, they're certainly better informed than I am. But I remain here in Japan and look forward to welcome you uh, here again see you on the first tee all right well thank you so much andrew thanks for sharing those stories with me and i will uh see you next time all right everybody that was andrew thompson again you can uh i'm going to recommend his book bridge to the gods tales from kyushu he um that is is a book that I really enjoyed reading. It has a, a bit of golf stories in it, um, <laughs> but as he said, it's not a not a huge amount of golf. But uh, it's some very interesting stories about a very interesting part of Japan from somebody who is an excellent storyteller. So that uh, is this show. I could talk with Andrew for another hour, but I won't. I will save it for the next time. And I will sign off from Yantikau, Thailand for ATC. I am Micah Woods. Thanks for listening. <laughs>